If you brought your Bibles, you can flip to the book of 1 Peter once again, and we will be in chapter 3 and verse 1 tonight. If you did not, the uh, Scripture will be on the screen behind you as well, as we are about three-quarters of the way through the book of 1 Peter, though we are in chapter 3 of five chapters. Uh, last week, as you recall, if you listened or you were here uh, with us together, last week was a, a challenging topic. It's a humbling topic. Um, I would say right off the bat that this week's is as well. Um, the idea that we have throughout this section of 1 Peter is one of Christians being called to a level of subjection or submission. It's the same word in Greek. It gets translated both ways in English. And in general, as we are aware, in our culture, it's not in style, right? Subjection to any sort of authority, particularly those that are not great, um, is not in style in our world. Um, but I would encourage us as we think about being in subjection, being in submission, following in the feet of Jesus and who He was and is and what He has done for us, don't reject what the culture rejects. Follow hard after how Christ has lived His life on our behalf. Um, what we are doing at the outset when we open the pages of Scripture each week is we are saying, Lord, your word defines my life. Not the opposite, right? That my life will somehow then define your word. So we submit ourselves even to the word of God. And a passage like this is going to teach us as wives how we can love our husbands and as husbands how we can love our wives. But I want to say also at the outset that this passage applies to all people, to all believers. So whether you are youth and you are in love with the idea of marriage or you're a single person and you're trying to understand the idea of marriage, or maybe you are someone who has been hurt or wounded by the institution of marriage and you've experienced something, uh, maybe like a divorce. Or you're just somebody who is actually married. Where, wherever you find yourself in God's goodness in your story, this passage is for you. Um, I love this passage. I appreciate this passage. And it lands at a cool time for us. Um, on Tuesday, July 27th, will be eight years to the day that I asked Alana to marry me. We have a picture. I don't know if you can see it from there. You probably can't see it on the live stream too well. But that is me proposing to my wife uh, on the Brooklyn Bridge. It was a special moment. Um, hard to believe it was eight years ago. But I say that particularly just to tell you um, some of you guys, I'm looking around, I'm scanning here in the room, maybe some applies to some of you, definitely live stream. Some of you guys have had arguments that have lasted longer than our marriage, right? So I, in humility, will admit that we have not been married that long. So we are still very much learning. We're learning each other. We're certainly learning how to apply the Word of God. Um, but we're also humbled by a lot of the marriages that are in our church that we look up to, and um, we're encouraged by how we ought to love each other by what we see in other believers um, inside and outside of this church doing. Bottom line, and I'm going to give you this right up front, bottom line on the screen um, is this. As we look at this passage, this is our bottom line. Jesus has lived out both loving, courageous submission and loving, self-sacrificing leadership. He's done both perfectly. So we can live them out in our marriage and in our home as well. 
That's the bottom line, okay? Everything flows out of Christ. So with that, let's look at 1 Peter, uh, his very brief word on the topic of marriage through the lens of suffering and dealing with difficult authorities and dealing with difficult situations and submitting to things that we don't always love. Scripture says this, beginning in verse 1. Likewise, it's an important word and we'll come back to that. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious." For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's take a moment and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is our authority and we submit ourselves joyfully to you because we trust you. We trust your plans for our lives. We trust your word. And uh, Father, we know that many of the difficulties that we face in life are because we have forgotten you, we have ignored you, we have pushed away from your good plan and ultimately your good news in Jesus. Um, But Father, it is nonetheless, it is a difficult world that we live in and you gave us this message from 1 Peter um, and, and this book of the Bible to remind us that as Christians we will face trouble and yet Jesus' words over all that suffering, all of that struggle, over those moments where our faith is being refined by fire, And we don't like being in the fire. Jesus gave us the words, take heart, for I have overcome the world. Jesus told us in Matthew 28 that he is with us always, even to the end of the age. And so we cling to that promise, even as we open your word this evening. Ask that you would give us open hearts to receive it and to apply it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Three applications then. Very, the passage breaks out very easily into three little applications. And the way that I have uh, written those for you this evening, number one, wives be subject to your husbands to show them Jesus. Number two, let your character be the beauty that shows Jesus. And number three, husbands honor your wives as precious co-heirs of the grace of Jesus. So, beginning with uh, the first two verses, number one, wives, be subject to your husbands to show them Jesus. Now, I've already said a little bit about this, but remember, it begins by saying likewise, or another way to translate it, in the same way. The reason that it says that is because it is referencing the bigger picture of what Peter has been telling us for the last several chapters. Um, And so, the context here of the Scripture is incredibly important. So he's already told us that believers are going to face difficult uh, or even sometimes unjust relationships. We saw that perfectly clearly last week as related to the government and masters of servants or even slaves. Okay, so not only that, but also we're told throughout that passage that we do it for the Lord's sake. 
in obedience to God, says chapter 2 and verse 13. So in the case of wives, it's not because husbands are better. It's not because husbands never make mistakes, because obviously we do, but because Christ has suffered for you. He calls you into suffering. You're telling me that in my marriage I'm going to suffer. Yes. (laughs) If you're not married, surprise. If you are married, you already knew that, that there was going to be challenges along the way. But the hope that we have is we're reminded that by Jesus' wounds that we are healed, and that healing, that hope comes even in human relationships like marriage. And so now we get to this, this challenging word where it says, be subject then, speaking to wives, to your own husband. Not to other people's husbands, but wives, be subject to your husbands. Um, the wife's reverence or reference, uh, the wife's reference, sorry, for God is her motivation. Not the perfections of her husband, um, but rather who the Lord is. Because we know that sinners are going to sin. We know that husbands are going to sin. And in this particular passage, we're being reminded that these husbands were, in some cases, not even believers. And so the question has arisen, what should that believing wife do with her husband who does not believe? And the opposite will be true as well. Guys, both husbands and wives are called to be servants are called to submission, are called to be servants of God, who then, out of their servanthood before God, serve one another and are willing even to suffer to serve others because we're following in the footsteps of Jesus. Um, All of us, obviously, know what it is like um, to live with an imperfect person. I think Alana, for the last six weeks, has been saving up all of her amens to be able to speak to that reality of being married to an imperfect person. But alas, she's watching my children in the back so she doesn't get to amen when I talk about my sin. You can cover for me. Thank you. Um, So how do we then understand submission or subjection in the context of wives and husbands? The simplest way is one word. Jesus. Right? Jesus. Look at the scripture with me. This is from Philippians chapter 2. But Philippians chapter 2 is this powerful uh, passage that talks about Jesus' submission. And in describing Jesus, it says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, what is Jesus doing here? It says, while Jesus, being equal to God, and just so we're clear, Jesus is God, fully God, while being equal to God, he took the most submissive role that he possibly could. He took on the role of a servant who was going to die for someone undeserving. Who's that someone? Well, me, us. So the son takes this submissive role. And here's the important thing. Jesus submits. And in submitting, Philippians will go on to tell us, it doesn't show his weakness. His submission, get this, shows his his greatness. Jesus' submission shows his greatness. And so when wives are called to follow Jesus' example, what they are doing is living out a courageous, like Jesus, loving, like Jesus, submission, again, for the Lord's sake. And because it's for the Lord's sake, it's important to remember that that role that wives choose to take on, that it is voluntary, meaning that it is a gift that a wife gives to her husband and family, not a duty that is to be forced or demanded. 
And you can see that those would be a very opposite experience. But to get the full picture of what's going on here, I, th- I think it's important anytime we talk about marriage that we really mine the scriptures for some of the other powerful instructions that are given to help us get a fuller picture. And so I want to look at just sort of the basics of marriage for an extra second. Um, We know from the book of Genesis at the very beginning, we're told marriage was made by God at creation, and it enters in a perfect world in Genesis 1 and 2. And there the scripture says, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And this is so important, the two shall become one flesh, that we view them now as one. We continue to understand from that passage and others that marriage then is a covenant, which means a promise that you do not break. God is ultimately the only one who can make a perfect covenant promise, but nonetheless we are called to imitate him in that. Marriage is a covenant and not a contract. It is a covenant in that it reflects the love that God has for us and not a contract that reflects um, really much of what we've seen in professional sports in recent times. Um, I finally have gotten the chance to watch the, uh, the 10-part miniseries on Netflix, maybe you've seen it, about the Chicago Bulls. And, and one of the themes that runs through that 10-part miniseries is the tension over contracts between Jerry Krause, who is the general manager, and among others, Scottie Pippen, who is the player, and they cannot ever come come to an agreement, and it rips their relationship apart. It rips the team's relationships apart because it's a contractual relationship where they, and you see this in in their relationship, that they're constantly looking for loopholes. Uh, They're looking to protect themselves. They're looking for me-first mentality. I want my money. Both of them are fighting over money in that way. They're both looking for ways to sort of bail them out, looking for clauses to escape and excuses to walk away. And so often, particularly in American culture, we will approach marriage as a contract. But the Scripture says it's a covenant. It's a promise, just like God has promised us. So when I stood next to Alana eight years ago, and we committed to one another in marriage, in the middle outdoors of Hurricane Sandy, we stood before God and some very wet and soggy and windblown witnesses, and we said these words, I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. And we weren't perfect. And we messed that up all the time, both of us. But we resolved by God's grace to commit our whole lives together in a covenant relationship. She, in that moment, and every day since then, resolved to trust me as the imperfect human leader of our marriage and our home. And I resolved as that leader to put her first as the lead servant in our family before even my children that I would put her first. And we resolved together that Jesus would be the head of our home. Who's the head of your home? Jesus. We're not perfect, but that is what we're trying, trying to do. The scripture goes on in Genesis 1 and 2 to tell us that men and women are equal. And this is incredibly important because generally when people approach this scripture, what they immediately feel concern about is, are you saying that men and women are in some way unequal? Very much no. (laughs) The scripture says God created man and woman both in the image of God. And and that reality is so important, particularly in our culture and context and day, but it's very important here in this discussion as well. Men and women both equally made in the image of God, which means they are equally loved by God, 
that they are equally valued by God, equally called, equally gifted by God, the Creator, and equally, interestingly, in Genesis, given dominion over the earth to rule over it as as God's hands, and also equally sinners, equally with access to the grace of God. So husbands and wives then are equal, called into this covenant relationship, and have complementary roles. Well, where does that come from? The idea of these complementary roles shows up again in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2.18, it says of Adam, it is not good for the man to be alone. All right, now we'll try something here. Husbands, if you're in the room, there's a couple of you, I want you to stand up. Physically, literally stand up. If you are on live stream, husbands, if your wife is anywhere in the general vicinity, I want you to stand up. If you can make eye contact with your wife, I will make eye contact with my wife through the wall. Repeat after me, husbands. My life, nice and loud, my life makes no sense without you. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. All the ladies said amen. Okay. That is the reality of what God was saying to Adam. My life, your life makes no sense without her. It's not good for the man to be alone. And so God makes Adam first. He calls him the head. Adam is the physical source of Eve. Adam names her. And Ephesians 5 says the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And then he makes Eve, he creates Eve in the image of God equally so, and calls Eve then a suitable helper. Yet again, another, uh, another phrase in Scripture that can easily be misunderstood and, and be found e- easily offending. Let's understand what the Scripture means, though. When it says Eve was a suitable helper, she is in no way being described as inferior, which is generally maybe the way that we begin to take it. That is not what it is saying. Suitable helper is almost always used in the Scripture, that word in in Hebrew, to describe God. You think about that. Suitable helper is almost always used to describe God. A suitable or strong helper is the way that it translates, is the idea that, that she would make up what is lacking in him with her strength. So they are opposites. You know, we talk so much in marriages about, oh man, we're such opposites and opposites attract. Well, they do attract, but we're also incomplete without each other. And so that is what God is hinting at here, that we are two pieces of a puzzle that yes, we are messed up puzzles, but that we fit together and we're stronger together than we would ever be apart. And that structure that God created was perfect until the fall and until sin messed it up. But yet God continues with that structure, even in the fallen world that we live in today. And so husbands leading uh, and, and wives trusting that leadership will mean that husbands use their leadership to put their wife first. And this, again, we so often miss that reality. For a husband to lead means that he is going to put her first. See, I am on my own often very unworthy of Alana's respect or submission, to use the word of Scripture here, and my responsibility as a husband is by God's grace to do my best to live up to that, but I will admit to you that I will and I do fail at it, even as she fails in her own sins as well. But husbandly leadership that is is done well is leadership, guys, I believe that your wife will appreciate. 
Husbandly leadership done well is leadership that a, a wife will be happy to follow in. Happy to follow in. And that is so incredibly key. Ephesians 5 says again, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. Well, what did Jesus do? He gave himself up for her. And that is what we are to emulate. So, very practically speaking, husbands and wives, we make decisions together, always together, with mutual discussion, mutual submission, mutually in prayer, together and apart, working together. That uh, it doesn't mean that husbands get to win the argument. There's no automatic uh, victory in that. And what's interesting is Peter does not go into detail. He gives the particulars, he gives the command on purpose, I think, and, and encourages believing husbands and wives to follow the Scripture and then work it out between them how exactly they're able to pl- apply the particulars of God's Word in submission to God and in grace towards one another. Now, just to be super, just to cover all the bases, does this mean, as we read First Peter here, does it mean that a wife or a husband should stay in a marriage where there is abuse uh, or infidelity? No, absolutely not. Uh, Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians chapter 7 both make that abundantly clear. Certainly we want to see repentance, and I have seen marriages in which those circumstances took place, and there was repentance, and there was forgiveness. But the Scripture here, not in 1 Peter or anywhere else, it's not giving permission for husbands to abuse or mistreat their wives. It is not giving any sort of blessing of that in any way, shape, or form. And we'll see that all the more clear when we get to verse 7, where husbands are being instructed as to how to love their wives. The other part, to finish out this, just looking at wives here, is that Peter adds this, this bonus idea that they are specifically doing what they're doing to show their husbands Jesus, so that they may be one, is the, the language that Peter uses. And the instruction is specifically here for wives to be used by God to bring their unbelieving husbands to faith and for them to then submit themselves to God. This is, again, one aspect of, of many different applications of what Peter is saying throughout these couple chapters. If you remember earlier, let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12. Speaking to all believers, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter's goal is that by your actions that you might live out so truly the good news of the gospel that people would come to know and believe in Jesus. And it's nowhere more personal than a wife being able to lead her husband to faith. So the instruction here from Peter is clear. If you become a believer, don't leave that most important of human relationships rather remain for the Lord's sake in hope that God would redeem the heart of that other, uh, of that spouse that they might come to know Jesus. In this case, that a husband might be won to faith by the testimony of his wife, that, that a, a believer might see the behavior of their spouse and be transformed by the grace and the power of Jesus and their lives be changed. Which leads us to number two. And we're not going to spend too much time here on number two. But look at number two. Let your character be the beauty that shows Jesus. And this is verses three through six that I want to reread so we know where we're going. 
The scripture says in verse 3, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Okay, so there are really two ways that you can misunderstand this little chunk of the passage. The first is to assume that this passage is giving a legalistic ban on all outward beauty. No beauty! That's not what the Scripture is saying. But it would also be equally incorrect to think that this Scripture, this command, uh, can be ignored because it somehow feels outdated. Both would be a mistake. What Peter says is it's not about the external adorning. Uh, The point is, again, not a legalistic ban on makeup or attractive clothing. Um, I remember listening to this exact passage preached in this exact room about 30 years ago. So I'm eight years old, and I had a crush on another little eight-year-old girl who was in the congregation that day. And as I heard that portion of the passage read, I immediately began to judge this girl because she was wearing a really pretty white dress and had her hair braided. And I thought, oh man, somebody needs to tell her. She is in sin right now. Well, why did I think that? Well, I was eight. Give me some grace. I was eight. I was obviously, at best, phenomenally spiritually immature. And that is the tendency of the spiritually immature to move to a legalistic point of view. And because I didn't understand, even bigger sense, that this scripture was speaking internally about a character of the heart that would then flow to the way that I looked on the outside, I didn't get it. Um, Praise the Lord, I did not go up to her after the service and tell her to repent of her outfit. Um, So it just stayed in my own head, and that was my problem to deal with. But the point here too, though, in the Roman Empire, as in our own day, there was a massive tendency to dress in a way that was sensual and explicit. And what Peter is clearly and simply saying is, rather than making that who you are, make it about the internal beauty of godly character, which is vastly superior. Um, This heart adorning that Peter speaks about in the Old Testament, awesome passage, simple idea, right? Proverbs 31.30, charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Does this only apply to women? Of course not. Does it apply to men? Absolutely. But that idea of inner character being beautiful. The scripture here, Peter says that it's the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Well, what else is imperishable for Peter? Well, the word of God is imperishable. So you can see that he's giving this very high value, but then he he calls it a gentle and a quiet spirit. It's important to recognize next that gentle and quiet spirit is not a feminine trait. It's a Jesus trait. In fact, Jesus himself describes himself. In Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, he says of himself that he, has a gent- he is gentle and humble in heart. It's the same words. It is also this idea of a gentle and quiet spirit is actually one of the fruits of the spirit that shows up in Galatians chapter 5, verse 23. Now, to be clear, there are not pink spiritual fruits for girls and blue spiritual fruits for boys, but rather just the fruits of the Spirit that we as believers are called to exemplify. 
right? So in 1 Peter chapter 3, it's applied to wives. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it is applied to all of believers. Certainly the same would be said of the fruits of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit that actually is in existence here is uh, more often translated as the word meekness. And I have only in the last several years come to understand the power, the transforming power of exhibiting the Jesus Christ characteristic of meekness, which is knowing that you have the power, knowing that you have the ability, but having the discernment and the self-control to know when to use it. Certainly we can see the powerful Son of God, Jesus Christ, who chose to hang on the cross to die for our sins would be the perfect example of meekness. But nonetheless, we can imagine how in the lives of godly men and women that this trait might be applied. To put it another way, it means that you let the gospel do your talking as Jesus did. To let your faith in Christ be the mark of who you are when you do choose to speak. And it just reminds us that God's sight matters more. When God is looking, it matters more than when your culture is looking. When God is looking, it matters more than that person who is mocking and ridiculing you for following in the footsteps of Jesus. God's sight on you matters more. His loving, fatherly care for you matters more than when people will attack you for trusting in Him and His Word. And that the fear of God ought to be what drives us, not terror, but humility before God. Rather, says the Scripture in closing there, in fearing men. It's a powerful word for us. Third and finally, we come to the husbands, and Peter gives us verse 7, speaking directly to the husbands. Husbands, honor your wives as precious co-heirs of the grace of Jesus. Let's read verse 7 one more time. Likewise, the same likewise, therefore the same reason, likewise in the same Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Likewise, in the same way, with all respect, for the Lord's sake, in submission to God, because Christ has suffered for you, we submit ourselves to one another. And here in this situation, you might have a situation where the husband is a believer and he is married to an unbelieving wife and so he is now called to do the same thing that the wife was before, which is show Jesus to that unbelieving spouse so that they might come to faith as well. He is also, uh, in that case, called to remain like the wife in that marriage covenant because it's a covenant, it's a promise, it's not a contract that you try and weasel out of. So the scripture says, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor. Respect has been our word uh, for wives to husbands, but here it is honor for husbands to their wives. The the connotation of the word, and it pops up in other places in 1 Peter, is preciousness. That when I honor her, I am understanding, believing, knowing, feeling the reality that she is precious. She is precious to me. I love her. I chose her. I've given my life to her and for her, but also that she is precious to my Lord, my Father, who we both submit to, that God has called her Father, that God has made her in His image, that God loves her, that God sent His Son to die for her. So when I honor her, I understand that she is precious. She's important. She's the most important. 
And then it throws in weaker vessel, which again is one of those places where you sort of, it feels like stepping on an air, like, ah, Peter, why'd you have to put it that way? In our culture, we, we hear that and we're like, what do you mean? Girls can run fast too. Girls can lift weights too. I get it. My wife can beat me up. I'm confident of it. But nonetheless, here what he's saying is weaker vessel. He means, it's very simple. He does mean physical, physical characteristics, right? The best way that you can think about this is um, we went on a date last night. So if we're out on a date and this does not happen, but if some big guy comes up, he pulls out a gun, he says, I'm going to beat you up if you don't give me all your money. Alana, I hope her immediate response would not be, hold on, Ben, I've got this one. That's all, that's all that it's saying. Um, some some probably could and they probably would, but that's all that he is saying here. There's also the recognition for Peter that in that culture particularly, which we don't see in this culture, but in that culture, women socially um, did not have the same level of rights or opportunities, and so he is recognizing that reality for them as well. What it means is knowing and caring for your wife's needs. Knowing and caring about your wife's feelings. Uh, Paul will say, love your wife even as you love your own body. That is the idea behind this preciousness and this concern for your wife, who Peter refers to as the weaker vessel in the relationship. The most important piece of the puzzle here, though, is what comes next, because he says, believing husbands and wives are heirs. She is heir and they are co-heirs of the grace of Jesus. 1 Peter 1.4 tells us that the, this, this inheritance, it is kept in heaven for you and it can never perish, spoil, or fade. And so that is what they are clinging to, the hope of heaven, heaven, the promise of eternity with God the Father, that we are co-heirs of that grace and promise. And out of that, we love and serve one another. What Peter is saying here actually flies in the face of a culture that believed in the inferiority of women. But what Peter is saying, she is a co-heir of grace with you. God's choosing and conferring of status as a royal daughter of God has been placed on her just like it's been placed on you. The word of God, as we surveyed in Genesis all the way to Revelation, is the foundation of women's and of wives' preciousness and honored equal identity. It comes from the Scripture. Galatians 3.28, in Christ there is no longer male or female, you are all one in Christ, says Paul. And then Peter adds with this final just sort of practical application when he brings up prayer. And he's saying, men, if you don't honor your wife, not only is it going to ruin your relationship with her, it's going to ruin your relationship with me. If you want to pray, love your wife. But he's also just encouraging men and women to initiate and pray together, which is easy to say but hard to do sometimes. But what Peter is just practically reminding us of is that we have the opportunity to pray together. I want to think about Paul for just a second, though, to finish this out. I think what Paul adds to this conversation is so important. Look at Ephesians 5.25, just one verse in a very long section that Paul is teaching on marriage. But Paul says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Understand, guys, this is a much stronger appeal to abandon your own self-interest than was ever given to the wife. 
Husbands, lead by putting your wife first and yourself second. Lead by self-sacrificial love, loving her the way that Jesus did. Well, what did Jesus do? Jesus took the initiative. Jesus gave himself up, gave his life up for the church. He went to the cross as a willing victim for sins that he did not commit. As a willing victim of torture and murder, he died for our sins, a love that was deep, a love that was self-sacrificing. And the scripture is saying, and, and I listen to the word, and as an imperfect husband, I say, I want to love my wife the way that Jesus loves the church. I want my kids to see me love my wife the way that Jesus loves the church. I want my daughters, I want my son to see that. To be a servant leader is another way that the the Scripture walks it out. Um, Like Peter, who saw Jesus when he was going to be betrayed. You remember what he did? He took off his outer garment, he wrapped himself in a towel, he got down on hands and knees and did one of the most humbling things he could do. He washed the dirty feet of each one of the disciples. That is what it looks like to be a humble servant leader in your relationship. The Gospel of Mark puts it this way, chapter 10, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Husbands, sacrifice your own self-interests for the interests of your wife. Remember that proximity does not equal presence, so let's remind ourselves to put our devices down, get home on time, and wake up on time with our family Ask ourselves the question, does our presence bring joy or does it bring stress in the lives of our wives and our children? Be good listeners. Don't always try to fix it. Don't tell your wife what to do, but watch out for her needs. Share the load. Maintain your household together. Raise your children, certainly, together. As Jesus submitted himself to death for us, And out of that reality, we can do that for our wives and we can do that for one another. It's all about Jesus, right? The way that Jesus submitted and the way that Jesus led, we desire to follow in those footsteps knowing that we will fail constantly, but there is grace and there is hope in Jesus. And we look forward to that day. The scripture tells us that our relationship with Christ is that he is the groom and that we are as his church, the bride. The song, Even So Come, that sings about that reality that we get in Revelation 21 and 22, the end of the whole Bible, um, has become so much more powerful to me. In the last uh, several years, our good friends Kevin and Megan got married um, two years ago, and the, the song that she came down to was this song, the, um, the song, Even So Come. And so the song is playing, and of course, before the bride comes out, I uh, and everybody else is looking at Kevin and we're watching his face and he's, he's anticipating her arrival and he's overwhelmed with emotion and, and he's weeping, but he's weeping out of joy. He's waited for her. He's prayed for her before he ever knew who she was going to be and now she is about to come through those doors. Right? And that is the way that Jesus' affection flows for his church. But at the same time, I can imagine, I couldn't see her, but I can imagine Megan who is outside those doors waiting. 
But when the doors open and even so come is booming on like the world's most state-of-the-art system with this incredible bass and boom, uh, the song is playing and she comes out and every jaw hits the floor as we see that bride come through the doors. And again, that is the way that Jesus sees us. Even entering heaven, the amount of affection that God has for us, we should be amazed at Christ's love for us. But there's the bride and she's waiting outside the doors. And that is us too. As we live in this world and there is suffering, there is that reality of we are waiting for the doors to open so that we can see our groom, Jesus. We're waiting for that moment. And the scripture tells us that that moment that we close our eyes in death, we will reopen them immediately and we will see the groom. We will see the bridegroom. And I think it will feel 10 times more glorious than what I've just described. But we look forward to that moment And that's why the the book of Revelation, the Bible ends with the words, come Lord Jesus, come, come, I'm ready, I'm ready. My hope is in you, take me home. Revelation 21 says, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let him that hears come, let him that thirsts come, take the water of life freely. Maybe today is the day that you would say, Father, In heaven, I come to you. I know that I'm a sinner. I confess my sins and I need the saving blood of Jesus. I need his forgiveness of my sins and I want to know you in that same eternal saving way. The scripture says, come. Let's take a moment in prayer and let's finish in in worshiping our Lord Jesus and declaring even so come. Father,